Today we're going to talk about the noble full path. Yesterday we have spoken about the first three of the four noble truths. Just to run through. First one is the noble truth of Dukkha. And second one is the origin of Dukkha. And the third, the cessation of Dukkha. And today we will be talking about the path leading to the cessation of Dukkha, which is the noble full path. Now the Noble Eightfold Path is, is a kind of gamma. It's a kind of work, a kind of doing, which is not like the kind of gamma that we are familiar with. Normally when we speak of gamma, we think in terms of good gamma, bad gamma. I mean good gamma, you do, you go to good place. Bad gamma, you do, you go to bad place. Uh, the kind of good, bad gamma. That is also one kind. And the Sutta also speaks of another kind of gamma, which it calls neither dark nor bright, leading to the ending of gamma, the ending of doing. And it is called the Noble Eightfold Path. Ending of doing, what does that mean? Doing what? In this context, it seems to mean ending of craving. Craving is the doing. We have been doing this for a long, long time. Doing, doing, doing. Craving, craving, craving. In fact, there was this sutta when a wanderer, Paribhajika, asked the Buddha, when a person has laid down his body but has yet to take rebirth, what sustains him? And the Buddha's answer, it is craving. Meaning this person, he has died but he has not yet take rebirth. At that time, he's not eating anything. So what keeps him alive, so to speak, alive? This craving that sustains his being. So even when you're not eating anything, whatever, you know, you're not craving for food, you're craving for movies, you're not craving for sex, you're not craving for any of this usual idea of craving, we crave for existence. And that is enough, that is enough to sustain. So this is the doing that it is seems to mean. But of course craving there's a, a kind of craving that is clinging. The Patichasopada says that conditioned by craving there is clinging. So it is very closely related. Now let's go to the first factor of the noble eightfold path. What's the first one? Anybody can tell me? What's the first of the Noble Eightfold Path? The Bali is Samaditi, often translated as right view or right understanding. Ditti literally means what is seen, that which is seen. So view is a pretty good translation. Sama is often translated as right, but I kind of write proper, so proper view. So what is the view here? According to the Dhammachakapavatana Sutta, the Sutta on the turning the wheel of Dhamma, right view or proper view here is defined as simply the Four Noble Truths. So in other words, in the Four Noble Truths you find the Noble Eightfold Path, and in the Noble Eightfold Path where we find this proper view, it is defined as the Four Noble Truths. 
So we have already explained that earlier on. Well, of course, right view in other sutta in other places is defined in a different way, but that is considered as the worldly view, the worldly proper or right view, and not this supramundane view. So I'm not going to talk much about that because I've already done that. Now the second part is Samasankapa. And I think so far the best translation I've ever seen, I think most accurate is orientation. So proper orientation. It's the mental orientation. How do we orientate the mind in the practice? If we orientate it wrongly, then it goes wrongly. If you orientate it rightly, then it goes rightly. So what is the right orientation here? First one is the orientation of Nekama. Nekama means giving up, letting go. Often it's translated as renunciation, but in the Buddhist world, renunciation, people tend to think of shaving the hand, putting on the robes. But this is not what it means here. It means giving up, letting go. So the practice has to come with the idea of giving up. You can't give up or let go just because you want to. But you need to have that idea. You wouldn't give up something that you wouldn't want to give up. That doesn't work. right? But if you find that this is so suffering, so suffering to hold on, to cling on to this thing, and so I had enough of it, so... There is a willingness, there is a wanting to give up, then it is possible. So this is the right orientation. Then there is the orientation of non-ill will. You know, partly, you know, it happens often that they like to use in the negative terms. Non-ill will. Do we practice with ill will? Do we? You never practice with ill will? Do you practice and sometimes, you know, some unhappy thoughts come to you. I say, now how do I get rid of this thing? Or some unpleasant feelings come out. Help, I don't want this. What can I do to get rid of this, you know, to trash it out? So at that time, you will towards your own thoughts. So what we want is non-ill will. And in other words, you can put it in a positive sense, it means it's a kindness. Even if you are in depression, it is so important to treat it with kindness, with non-ill will. Because if you were to treat it with more ill will, then it just gets worse. Because there's a lot of ill will in depression. There's a lot of defilements in depression. So when you treat it with ill will, you're just increasing that which is the depression. So whatever happens, especially when it is something very unpleasant, it's important to remember to treat it with non-ill will, to orientate the mind in a non-ill will way. So then there is the third one, that is non-violence. Do we practice with violence? Maybe. Some people, when they sit down, say, I don't care, I'm going to sit here and I don't care if my leg breaks. You know, they want to follow the Buddha, you know. So, so they can become very violent to themselves. Right? And they can be violent to whatever that comes to their mind. Thoughts come in. Whoosh. I remember I used to do that a lot, you know, when I, thoughts come in and I was told to not thinking, thinking, thinking. It's as if this 
instead of just recognizing the thinking is happening, it is an effort to get rid of it. Get out of my mind, you know, that kind of attitude. Another way to translate Sankapa is attitude, I think. It seems to fit in nicely too. So it's important to have this right orientation or right attitude in the practice. Because if you don't have this, then we are already on the wrong footing. So this needs to be uh, clearly borne in mind. And what's the third one? That one is Sama Vacha, or what we often call right speech or proper speech. So there are four parts to this. First one is abstaining from false speech. Another is abstaining from divisive speech, speech that causes people to split up. Third one is refraining from harsh speech, speech that is harsh in nature and probably hurtful. Not necessarily vulgar, but is harsh. Then, the lastly, idle chatter. Speech which is completely useless. You just talk for the sake of talking. Talk, talk, yak, 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 yak. Which is a kind of entertainment when you're very bored. <laughs> so, all these four is not helpful to our practice. And so we abstain from them. And my teacher always, well, from time to time, he'll say, right speech is not no speech. You know, practicing no speech is easy. Just zip up your mouth, just shut up and never say anything. But sometimes you need to say something. In some contemplative traditions, they have this vow of silence. In a Christian tradition, they have that. One contemplative Christian tradition. And in the Buddhist tradition, the Buddha actually disallowed that. Monks are not allowed to make a vow of silence. There was once a group of monks went to Vasa, you know, went to their rains retreat and went upon ending this uh, Vasa. The Buddha asked them, so how did you spend your Vasa? He said, oh, we uh, made a vow not to speak for the whole month. So then the Buddha asked him, so how do you communicate with each other? Say we use signs. <laughs> and then the Buddha scolded them. Saying that wasn't very smart. <laughs> so it's not no speech. But of course, over here, I would really suggest that you refrain from any speech that may not be necessary. Try, in fact, better still, you make an effort to not speak because you're going to speak anyway. <laughs> but tell yourself, okay, I don't want to speak. Unless really necessary. Then you wouldn't be speaking too much. Then you wouldn't be uh, indulging in idle chatter too much. Once you start talking and you find yourself going direction, oh, oh, okay, you better stop now. <laughs> And maybe you meet some people who are more chatty. Yeah, yeah, talk, 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 talk. So you need to know how to, you know, you need to have some kind of kung fu lah, to how to get out of that. Sometimes it's a simple way, just not say anything. Just keep quiet. And after a while, that person probably get it. <laughs> if that person doesn't get it, then you have to say something. I would like to go somewhere else now. So 
use your own wisdom, use your own ingenuity, how to practice. The next part is on action, on physical or bodily action, samakamanta. And this has three parts to it. You are probably very, very familiar with that already. That is to refrain from killing, to refrain from stealing. Actually, stealing is not a very good translation. It's adina dana. Adina means not given. And adana is, means to take. Meaning to take what is not given. That doesn't mean if somebody were to leave something there and didn't explicitly say that it's meant for you, and you just pick it up and to have a look, that's not considered taking. The idea here is to steal. So if you're picking it up, that doesn't count. You cannot put it back. Or if you were to just borrow it for a while. Um, or this person really, really is your good friend, he wouldn't mind, then can take also. The key here is adinadana is that you are taking with the intention of depriving that person. There's a thieving mind there. Then the next one is sexual misconduct. Interesting here is that it doesn't say sexual conduct. It says refraining from sexual misconduct. Meaning to say, possible to have sexual conduct and still be practicing. But that's not what I'm encouraging here. <laughs> Meaning to say, this is a long-run thing. Yeah. Over here, you observe a higher standard of a sila, the, the eight precepts. But it means to say here that the path to the ending of suffering is not only possible within a monastic life. It's possible within a household life. It's possible. But of course, some might find that more difficult. So people like me who like to choose the easy way choose monastic life. <laughs> so these are the three parts to samakamanta or proper action. It doesn't tell you what to do, it just tells you, don't do this. So, easy. <laughs> now, next one is Sama Ajiva, right livelihood. In the Dhammachakapavatana Sutta, it does not elaborate it very much. It simply says, having abandoned wrong livelihood, you engage in right livelihood or proper livelihood, and that's it. It doesn't give you the details. But generally, it means any kind of livelihood any kind of way of getting the means to survive has to be not causing disharmony to yourself and to others. So things like gambling, bribery, butchery, anything of this sort, it just complicates your life, makes things more difficult. This is true also for the, uh, on the speech and on action. What kind of speech and action actually makes your life more disharmonious? So all those things, we refrain from them. And for a monk, the livelihood, how do we get a livelihood? Is to take a bowl and get food. One time I were on the way to the market. So we went at the temple, that little shrine that you probably saw. They call it Ho Ya, right? the Tiger General Shrine. From here, it's beyond the uh, cemetery. There's this little shrine next to the river. So one time I was waiting there, and then one guy there asked me, Suhu, Kitolo, where are you going? Say, Kitanjia. 
I'm going to get food. In Hokkien, Tanjia actually means you, you go and earn a living. Yeah. But literally, that's what we do, you know, uh, to get something to eat. So for lay people, you also have your way of getting something to eat to sustain your life. And you should choose things that are not causing any harm to anybody, not to yourself or to others. Because if you do that, then it just creates more bad karma. And bad karma comes back and hit you. Lots of people, uh, even they want to practice, they come here, they want to learn the Dharma and all that. Then they injure their back and they have to go back. Things like that could happen. So we don't want to be making our path more difficult than it is. <laughs> our next one is often translated as right effort. The word Vayama is often translated as effort. And I rather not use that word. I rather use the word endeavor. The reason why I want to avoid the word effort is because effort has many, many meanings. And some of these meanings means you got to push yourself. Really, really push yourself. And as I mentioned earlier, this is not what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to keep it up, continue to practice, but not to push. And also, the definition of Vayama here, there are four parts to it. Right. To help you to remember more easily, the first two parts has to do with the unskillful, the akusala, or the unwholesome. Then the other two parts has to do with the kusala, the wholesome, or the skillful. Now, the first one says that whatever unskillful things that has a reason, unskillful qualities of the mind that has a reason, we work for its subduing. And the second one, that which has not yet a reason, what we do is to keep it there, not have it arise. And the third one is whatever good qualities that has not yet arisen, we develop it, bring it up. Then whatever good qualities that is, has already come to be, we develop it further until it becomes strong, it reaches its fulfillment, become consummate in it. So now, a lot of times people look at the first two and they have a mistaken understanding. Like for example, the first one, unwholesome quality that has a reason, we should try to subdue it. So what people do is that when anger arises, they try to suppress it. As Xiaolo Dijania, my meditation teacher, said, he says, this part, it tells you what to do, but it doesn't tell you how. It doesn't tell you how to do it. It tells you, okay, so there's unwholesome qualities, and so what you need to do is to subdue it, but it doesn't tell you how to do it. The how actually is in another part of the noble path. That's the next one, Samasati. This one just tells you what to do. So therefore, I prefer to translate as proper endeavor. Instead of effort, I prefer the word endeavor. This is my endeavor, right? This is what I want to do. So it narrows down the meaning so that the meaning is not misconstrued. So if you take anger to mean something that you need to forcefully subdue, what happens is that you are at that time already having wrong orientation. The orientation of the mind is to kill, is to destroy, or is to suppress. It is something that is not kind, not gentle. Do you see that? 
So when you take this part and you ignore the rest of the Noble Eightfold Path, you end up doing something that is something else. It's not it. That's how so-called right effort can go wrong, because you didn't understand how to do it. So then there is the second part, which is that which has not yet arisen. You try to keep it there. That also doesn't tell us how. The how is elsewhere. So maybe you find yourself impatient and you try not to be impatient, so you try to suppress your impatience. By that time, you're already so tense up. Or you're having some last arising. You know, I'm not supposed to have last. I'm supposed to be in a meditation retreat. <laughs> this is not supposed to come up. Oh, you get more and more tense. And so the right endeavor, how it is done, is mentioned in the later part. It means it has to be done with intelligence, it has to be done with remembering to apply certain perceptions, remembering to be aware and to see things as they are. If we forcefully do it, then this is already wrong effort. Now, same goes for the other two parts when it comes to the wholesome qualities. We cannot force it. Some people, you know, they hear we need to be continuous in your awareness, so they try very hard to be continuous. Okay, aware, aware. Don't lose it. Don't lose it. Aware, aware, aware. Oh, this is going to be very stressful. So at that time, you become very tense. Whenever you become more and more tense, you know something is wrong already. It's definitely wrong effort. So the best thing for you to do is to stop and check. Wait, wait. What am I doing? It's like you're driving a car in the wrong direction. If you find something amiss, don't keep going. Because if you keep going, you're just going further. The most progressive thing for you to do at that time is to stop and check. But men don't do that normally. <laughs> just keep going. <laughs> I know, I know. I'll just try to figure it out somehow. But somehow they manage that, but that could take a long, long time. <laughs> so stop. If you find things seem to be going wrong, stop. Really, that's the most progressive thing to do. Just um, if you're aware, you're okay. You can't be going wrong. Whatever you're doing, you're not doing it right. So the best thing to do is to stop. So the the wholesome parts to develop, to bring up, to arouse that which is has not yet arisen, and to develop, these two also has to be done in the right way. So it tells you what to do, but it doesn't tell you how. So now let's go to the how. Samasati. Sati is a noun that is a verb that is often translated as mindfulness. Now, the trouble with the word mindfulness is that it's not very clear. Not because of the word itself, because many people interpret it in different ways. Different people interpret it in different ways. Now it is such a popular word in psychotherapy. Mindfulness. Now, if you were to search through the medical journals, you find this word mindfulness occurring many, many times, which is something that doesn't occur some decades ago, but now it has become very, very common. And each therapist seems to have his own definition of what it means. And my teacher Xiao Dotejania, having come to Malaysia, having been exposed to foreigners, realized that when they use the word mindfulness. They use it in a very, very wide way. If you don't have wisdom, it's also you're not mindful. If you forget to do something, you're also not mindful. If you are a bit muddle-headed, it's also not mindful. 
it seems to mean many things. So if you're not concentrated, you're also not mindful. So his understanding of the word sati is awareness. But actually, that's also not very accurate. The word sati comes from the verb sarati. And sarati means remember. You find it in the text sarati occurring many times, and it means remember. Remember to do this, remember not to do that, that remember. So this samasati and also the five faculty sati means the same thing, remembering. Remembering what? Remembering how to practice. Remembering to have the right perception. Remembering to have right orientation. To practice, you need to remember not to do this and to do that. You need to remember. Of course, remembering to be aware. That remembering. But in order to cultivate this remembering, of course, we need awareness. So remembering what? How do we cultivate this samasati? In its elaboration, you have the Kaya Nupasana, Vedana Nupasana, Chitta Nupasana, and the Dhamma Nupasana. Kaya Nupasana means observation of the body. Then there is the observation of feelings, observation of mind, and observation of, you could say, phenomena, mental phenomena. So these are the ways to cultivate sati. When we observe, let's say you start off with breathing. So as you breathe in, you know you're breathing in, you breathe out, you know you're breathing out. Already you are cultivating sati. When there is an unpleasant feeling, you know there is an unpleasant feeling. When there's a pleasant one, you know there's a pleasant one. Or if it's neutral, you're cultivating sati. When the mind is with anger, you know that the mind is with anger. Or when it's without, you know it's without. You're cultivating sati. When it is composed, you know with it's so. When it's not composed, you know with it's so. You're cultivating sati. When there is drowsiness, and you know drowsiness is happening, it's also cultivating sati. It brings to mind some people who think that they need to suppress anger, need to control anger. You find that over here the Buddha never say you need to control anger or suppress it. What he says is that when the mind has anger, know that the mind has anger. That's it. If you suppress anger, you're just trying to push down something that, that kind of mental energy and it doesn't go away. You're just ignoring it, pushing it away and what happens is that you get a lot of tension inside. And sometimes people, when they can't push it aside, then they get frustrated, they get angry. And so, is there more anger or less anger? So you need to know to do it the right way. This is so important. People who get into depression, simply because they don't know how. When they have a lot of anger, a lot of desire, all these things happening, what they do is they just use suppression, use all sorts of means and ways, anything other than the middle path. And so it just builds up. In fact, they're feeding it, they're adding to it. They're adding fuel into fire. It grows. And they wonder, how come not working? When it's a little bit, it's possible to just kind of ignore it, push it aside, it's possible. But when it's big, it's not possible. But perhaps when it's little, we can push it aside and say, ah, this works, but as it grows bigger and bigger, we think we can use the same method. And you find that it doesn't work. And people get into a very knotted up situation. And it can be really, really unpleasant. 
it just shows us how powerful the mind is when it goes in the wrong direction. But at the same time, of course, the mind also has the power to go in the right direction if we have the right ideas, we have the right orientation. So I'm not going to go into too much details on the Samasati. You're already practicing it. Yeah, that would be a more direct way of understanding this. The next one is Samasamadhi, often translated as right concentration. In my research into this and in my practice, I see that it is not the right translation. And it is because of this wrong translation that people practice it wrongly. The word concentration itself is not very wrong if you understand the word correctly. As I explained the other day, concentration could mean like a cup of water that has a lot of salt in it. So there's a high concentration of salt. Yes? But because when we think of the word concentration in the context of meditation, which is a mental work, we think in those terms of concentrating the mind. So meaning to say you're going to kind of focus your attention into a very, very small place, very small area, usually this place. That is the common idea of what meditative concentration is. But this itself is not too bad yet. right? But if you think this is all that there is to it, then this is what you do. You're all you're doing is to keep focusing and focusing. And so perhaps when you have focus in a small area, maybe that's not enough for you. Keep focusing in the even smaller area and smaller area. And again, it can give you a big headache. Or at least, if you're not having a headache, it's very tiring. The word samadhi comes from a passive verb, samadhiati. And samadhiati, this passive verb is coming from an active verb called samadhahati. Adhahati means to place, to put. Sang means together. So it means to put together. Or in other words, to collect. The word samadhi, very quite accurately translated as collectedness. The mind that is collected or composed. I choose the word composed over collectedness, although actually I like collectedness very much. It seems to be very accurate. But I choose the word composed more over that because of translation. Sometimes in the Pali, you'll find the uh, sort of imperative. It says, Jitang Samadaha, meaning to say, Jitang means mind, Samadaha means to compose or to collect. But to compose the mind, okay, seems all right. To collect the mind can give a funny idea. Collect the mind. Where's the mind? Over there, go and collect it. <laughs> so, uh, compose seems to uh, fit in better. Lah. So, right composure is my preferred translation for Samasamadhi. And it's always translated as the four jhanas. And some people say, a jhana not necessary for awakening. But that's a funny thing to say. If jhana is not necessary, then you only practice the seven parts of the Noble Eightfold Path. You're practicing Noble Sevenfold Path, missing out one part. So, yet again, there are people, they could look from the text and say, see, it says so you can think arahanhood without having jhana. But that is referring to the commentaries. And what I found is that the big confusion here is that they are talking about different things. The commentaries is speaking of one kind of jhana, and the suttas are speaking of another kind of jhana. The commentary of jhana is, has to do with a lot of absorption, 
yeah, so deal with having a what they call a counterpart sign, usually meaning a ball of light, what you call nimitta. And at that time, you pay attention to that and get absorbed into this sign. Such a practice cannot be found in a text. You can't find this thing at all. If this is how it's supposed to be practiced, I suppose this such a dramatic part would at least get a mention, but it doesn't get a mention at all. The word nimitta in the text has nothing to do with this ball of light. It just means, like for example, there is this term samadhi nimitta. Wow, that sounds like, you know, that's the nimitta, isn't it? Samadhi nimitta. But samadhi nimitta is defined as the four establishment of sati. Chattaro satipatthana. That is the samadhi nimitta. And in other places, the word nimitta has uh, different meanings, like for example, subha nimitta, literally, sign of beauty. Then patika nimitta, literally, sign of repulsion. Meaning this is something, something that the mind conceive or perceive as something that's beautiful or something that's repulsive. And Bhante Agachita was saying, you know, when a person watches the breath and he comes to the point of seeing a ball of light, and at a time when this has become stabilized, of course, later on, then you pay attention to the light. At that time, you're no longer doing anapanasati. You're not remembering the breathing. You're remembering a ball of light. So it's no longer anapanasati from that point onwards. And I'd like to point out also, anapanasati here, that the first three parts of the typical the standard elaboration on anapanasati uh, the basic one is first you are aware of breathing in and breathing out. When you breathe in long or short, you are aware. When you breathe out long or short, you are aware. And then after that, you have two trainings. One is I shall breathe in, experiencing the entire body, and I shall breathe out, experiencing the entire body. So it's talking about experiencing the body while breathing. It's not talking about just being aware of little part of the body. It's talking about the whole body. But the commentaries try to explain that body here means the breath body. But that doesn't make sense because it is already mentioned earlier. So then the later part is, I shall breathe in or breathe out. Breathe in and breathe out, tranquilizing the body. So again here, these two parts has nothing to do with the breathing itself. That The breathing is not the important part. It's saying that while you're breathing in or out, you are doing these things, which the attention is on the body. The body in general, and not one particular part of it. In the past, when I read this, because of my past understanding, it seems to me that, oh, it's correct. But later on, when the understanding changed and I look at it, hey, actually it doesn't say that, but I was just reading it based on preconceived ideas. So I read it that way. So in this Samasamadhi, which is typically elaborated as the four jhanas, understand that it does not refer to getting absorbed. In fact, the suttas clearly gives us the impression that while we are in jhana, you actually experience the body. You feel the body. You are in contact with the body. You don't find the shape. You may not be conscious of the shape, but you can feel the sensations. It is not a state where you don't feel anything. You're cut off from the five senses. And the word jhana here 
the best translation for it as I found so far is just simply meditation. So first jhana is first meditation. Second jhana is second meditation. And that's how the Chinese translate it too. Yi chan, er chan, san chan, si chan. I think that the first one they call it chu chan. There's a word that's related to it, jai. Jai means a person, a person who meditates. So it's a meditator. Now if you understood that way, that jhana is something that you're not cut off from all senses. It shows us that it actually is not that inaccessible. In fact, the Visuddhimagga says that Visuddhimagga is a late text, text that came about maybe even most conservatively at least 600 years after the Buddha's passing away. In that text, it says that jhana is only attainable by one in a million. So in Malaysia, how many people? 30 million? Close to that? So you think you're lucky enough? It gives an impression of something that's very, very difficult to attain. And that is accurate. That's probably very true in this idea of jhana. But the sutta jhana is something else. And also, you don't need to be worrying whether you're in first jhana or second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana. That's not important. Because every jhana, according to one another sutta, is, can be used to end defilements. Anyone. When it comes to a different levels of jhana, one, two, three, four, it's not about how concentrated you are, but how composed the mind is. The jhanas are always defined as uh, states of mind. Never ever the sutta define jhana in terms of the object, whether it is a breath or it is never defines it that way. They are always defined as states of mind. Actually, how I came about to have this word composure has to do with my meditation teacher, Xiaodo Tejanya, who prefers the word stability of mind, you have come across that term in the books that he has produced. But stability of mind, I find, is not, when I translate, I like to have not only the meaning, but metaphorically, it should sort of click as well. So compose means kind of to put together. Uh, collect also means to put together. So that's a bit closer to the literal meaning of the word samadhati. So that's the Noble Eightfold Path. And the Noble Eightfold Path leads to two things. A true more after this. From samadhiti to samasamadhi. And after that, there's two more sama. Most of you don't hear much of that. Well, sometimes they are worded differently. But basically, these two are samanyanadasana and samavimuti. Jnana dasana. Jnana means knowledge or simply means knowing. It's a noun, means knowing. Dasana means seeing. So proper knowing and seeing or right knowing and seeing. What does that mean? When we practice the Noble Eightfold Path properly, then we know and see things properly as they are. In the text, you also find this phrase, Yathabhutang Janati Pasati. I think they are just referring to the same thing. Janati is the verb form of jnana. Janati is to know. Jnana is knowing or knowledge. Then pasati is to see. Dasana means seeing or vision. So it's yatha bhuta means yatha means according to bhuta, sometimes translated as reality, but literally it means what has happened. To know and see according to what has happened. So things happen this way, 
you don't see them in this way. Your mind does not distort what you see or know. So that's where we get this term, to know and see things according to reality, or to know and see things as they are. And this is only possible when we cultivate the Noble Eightfold Path. And because of that, then there is Sama Vimuti. Vimuti means freedom or liberation. Because you know and see things as they are, therefore there is freedom. How does that work? When we know and see things as they are, the mind is able to let go. And that is the freedom. That is the liberation. During one discussion, one of the discussions I had with you all, I was explaining about Dukkha, the understanding of this nature of Dukkha. Some people think understanding Dukkha means understand that life is all so, so suffering. That is understanding Dukkha. No, 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 not like that. One time in Burma, there was a lady, she said she was having a shower and then she contemplated on Dukkha and then she cried. So, oh, there's so much Dukkha in life, you know, I see so much Dukkha. And the Sierra looked at her and said, no, no, that's not it. That's not seeing Dukkha. And he was trying to say something. I could see him trying to figure out something to say. And maybe because his English is not that good. And I thought I'd help him out and say, seeing sufferings, understanding Dukkha does not cause Dukkha. Understanding Dukkha does not cause Dukkha, does not cause you to suffer. Understanding Dukkha allows the mind to let go. It allows the mind to give up that which is creating Dukkha. And what happens is that without Dukkha, you are happy, right? It's opposite. And sometimes you can experience such things too in a grosser way. When you understand your problems, your unhappiness correctly, you have the proper knowing and seeing, you can let go. And when you let go, you find that that old way of clinging all to those ideas and all those things that you're clinging to, it just seems so funny to you. Yeah, why so stupid? Nah? Why don't cling at those funny things, you know? And you find it so hilarious. You could really laugh at yourself and you feel so happy. You understand that that's really, really painful, this clinging on. You really see it. That's so painful to cling on those things. But because you understand it thoroughly, clearly, then... The mind gives it up. Then you don't have this pain anymore. You understand it. So don't have the wrong idea of the practice. You need to see lots and lots of dukkha, meaning say you need to experience a lot of pain. <laughs> There's even such an idea of, you know, if you experience a lot of suffering in meditation, very good. <laughs> the more suffering you see, the faster you attain nibbana. God. That's a bit dangerous. <laughs> so, what do you do? You force yourself to sit in full lotus. Ah, then you can see a lot of dukkha. <laughs> then faster you attain nirvana, yeah? <laughs> so, be careful of wrong ideas. That leads you not to freedom from dukkha, it leads you to more dukkha. <laughs> because in the sutta, you also have the sama-sama of all these things, and you also have the mitcha, the wrong. From the wrong view to wrong samadhi, and also wrong knowing and seeing, and wrong liberation. And what in the world does that mean? I don't really know. It never explained. I could just guess, you know. Maybe these are people who are not liberated. They think they are liberated. So wrong liberation, you know. Otherwise, what could it mean? You know, <laughs> it says something a wrong one and a right one. 
that's the only thing that I can think of wrong liberation. Or maybe they kill themselves and the kind of liberation. Or they go cuckoo. <laughs> so it's important to get it right. You get the information right. You have proper view and so it leads the right way. Because if you don't start off with a proper view, it just leads you the wrong way. And definitely that just brings about not liberation, it's just something else. So that's all I have to say. Any question? If you find money on the floor, you take it and pass it to another person because you feel guilty. You feel guilty to take it for yourself. Yeah. So you pass it to somebody else. Yeah. Sometimes mm. to a beggar mm. or sometimes to the staff. Mm-hmm. So sting. Okay, here I can give an example from a later text on the Vinaya. There is a case of a monk when he was in a crowd and because of jostling, then an extra rope that he was carrying dropped. So it dropped on the ground and a monk saw it and he picked it up. Actually, he picked it up with an evil intention to take it. Then later on, he had guilty feelings. He had remorse whether or not he had stolen. During those times, cloth doesn't come by easily. It's expensive. It's not like, you know, now you have machines go jing jing jang jang and very quickly you can come out. It's not expensive. At that time, it's manual work. So it's expensive. And it's expensive enough for a monk if you were to steal a rope. It's expensive enough to be considered as parajika. means you're no longer a monk for the rest of your life. So when he decided later on, oh, maybe I did something wrong. So he had this guilty feeling. So he thought maybe he has committed a parajika, no longer a monk. So he went to some knowledgeable monks on the Vinaya and he asked them, I think I've committed Parajika. But they were wise enough to say, wait, 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 we're not sure yet. We're not sure yet. Uh, later, you know, you can refer to somebody else and then check it out. Eventually it is found out that this monk who dropped the rope, after he dropped it, he couldn't find it and he gave it up. Mentally he gave it up. He didn't regard it as his anymore. So when the monk picked it up, you know, he picked up something that doesn't belong to anybody. So therefore not stealing. Yeah. So it depends huh? <laughs> whether or not that person still regard that money as his. Hard to say. Some people after a long time, <laughs> give it up. Lah. Gone already. If in his mind he's still thinking that it's his and he's still wanting to find it back to look for it, then it will be parajika for that monk, you know. <laughs> Okay, when it comes to stealing, it only becomes stealing if you actually believe that it belongs to somebody. If you think that it actually belongs to somebody, and he knows it's his, and you take it, then only stealing. If you accidentally take something that belongs to somebody, right? sometimes we accidentally take somebody else's things, isn't it? Take it, put it in a bag, and go off, and say, hey, this is not mine. Is that stealing? That's not. If you believe that really that person doesn't want it anymore, if you're very clear about it, then it is not. Because it has to do with intention. But if in the mind, you're thinking, I don't know who's on. Don't care. You know? Just take. So it's a very different state of mind. If you believe that it belongs to somebody and you want to take it, then there will be stealing. Well, if he has given up in his mind, Oh, that and no one, more. you wouldn't know. Right, so it has to do with your perception. If your intention is not to steal, then it's not. 
then it cannot be. Yeah, it has to do with intention. Because if your intention is not still and you take it, you don't feel guilty, right? The wrong part is in the mind. There is one place when I was in Thailand, in Chiang Mai, around there. There is this temple which is built by artists. It's very beautiful temple, very nicely crafted, nice drawings and all that. It's actually it's an artist temple. <laughs> it's not a monk's <laughs> temple. And next to that is a art gallery. And in front of the art gallery is a glass shelf full of things that people forgot to take. So camera, things that art pieces, postcards that they have bought, all sorts of stuff there. Tripod even. <laughs> I don't know how people could forget a tripod. <laughs> all sorts of things there. So they're just waiting for people to come and claim and so many things, you know. But what can you expect? Tourists, they just go there for once and then they go off. But I don't know like, how they're going to deal with it. Uh, for me, I'll probably just label the date that is found and after a certain date, take it away. Lo. What to do? You don't expect them to come back. In SBS also, we have that policy. If you leave things here and you don't say anything, you go off after some time, we'll just do whatever thing is best with it. That wouldn't be stealing, right? <laughs> It has to do a lot with mental state and your intention. Now, even when it comes to sexual misconduct, somebody once asked me, so is a gay sex homosexual sexual misconduct? What do you think? Hmm? It is not. It is not. Unless, yes. of course, you already have a partner and you go for another one, uh, then that's a different thing, right? Or that person already has a partner. Hmm. Yes. Bante, it appears that we are a very lucky lot here. We got the opportunity to learn from you a progression from uh, concentration to a composure approach of uh, meditation. But as we are speaking out there, there are still a lot of monks who are insisting, no, this is the right way. Concentration, concentration, concentration. Now I'm thinking, could it be like these methods are for different type of people? Maybe some people, they are more suited for concentration method, they need to close their eyes all the time, and then some are more, you know, with the open or whatever method. Can you comment on that, please? You can practice that, and you can get into those absorbed states. It's not that you can't do that. But that's not part of the Noble Eightfold Path. In fact, the Visuddhimaka made it clear that jhana, at least its version of jhana, is not absolutely necessary that it's possible to awaken or uh, to be freed from the defilements without that kind of jhana. Right. So there's actually no contradiction there. So will it be right to say that means uh, some of those monks there are still ignorant of this progression? Yes. I mean, am I right to say that it doesn't mean that you close your eyes and uh, you are doing concentration? doesn't mean yes, of course. It doesn't mean that you close your eyes, you're doing concentration. Sometimes my eyes close too. It's just that my eyes are tired. <laughs> Why I encourage opening the eyes is that it's more helpful to keep up the awareness, not get lost in thoughts. That is something that I experienced for myself, and my teacher also encourages. The first time when I met my teacher, he didn't seem to think it was a good idea when I met him in the year 2000. At that time, I had a lot of tension in my head. 
I told some of you, those who came earlier. And after that, I went to his place. I found that I say, when I close my eyes, then I tend to get concentrated into this and then the pulling gets even stronger. So I find that I'm able to maintain awareness with my eyes open. That's something that I found out for myself. Huh? And he said, mm, okay, you can open your eyes in the beginning, and later then you can close it. But I didn't find that helpful. While I was having that, definitely it wasn't helpful. But some years later, I heard from others that he suggests practicing with the eyes open. <laughs> but if you think concentration is important, then of course, naturally, you would close your eyes. Because you would think that the sights would be a distraction, you would think that sounds would be a distraction. Not only you would close your eyes, you look for a very, very quiet place. And the insects makes too much noise, oh, it's disturbing my concentration. Right? Sometimes birds, you know, the whole flock of birds fly away. They quack, 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 quack. So if you think concentration is the important thing, then there'll be lots and lots of distraction to your practice. There'll be lots of things that you consider as obstacles. Yeah. Yeah, Monday. Say A cheated B said 10,000 ringgit. A cheated B 10,000 ringgit. Yeah, then B breaks into A's house and uh, take back the 10,000 ringgit. (laughs) (laughs) Stealing. (laughs) Both stealing. (laughs) Both stolen from each other. (laughs) But this is B's money. Well, actually, if um, according to the Vinayala, right, uh, you don't have to agree with this, according to Vinaya. Once something is stolen, it belongs to the thief. That's how it's regarded. Once something is stolen, it belongs to the thief. Um, so if you steal back from the thief, just stealing. Yes. Ante, regarding the eyes closed and not closed, I find it is easier for me to close my eyes and I could be aware of everything, very conscious of feelings, everything, all at once. Whereas if I open my eyes, then uh, my awareness goes off. Okay? There's a lot of distraction and then my awareness is sort of lost. Lost and kind of triggered by what you see. Yeah. How do you practice when you walk then? Sort of mentally half-close my eyes. Mentally half-close your yeah. eyes. How does that work? <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather uh, sort of uh, half-close my eyes. Uh-huh. Uh, even when I walk in the hall. Okay, okay. Now, if your eyes are distracted by things, meaning to say your eyes are open and you see something in the corner of your eye, are you conscious of that? Yeah, yeah. in a way. But actually, when I open my eyes, not that I'm distracted by sights or what. The thing is, I seem to lose awareness. Why? I find it very difficult to be aware when my eyes open. When you open because your eyes, I, how I, do you practice? I don't know. I don't know how you to don't know practice. how to practice? I don't know how to practice. Oh, if you don't I... know how to practice, of course you will lose it. <laughs> because at that time, when you don't know, not knowing how to practice is doubt, is uncertainty. That is the fifth hindrance that cripples you completely. Whenever you don't know how to practice, that is doubt. That is what is meant by doubt. Doubt here doesn't mean not sure of just anything, but it's referring to doubt as in how to practice. So if you open your eyes and don't know what to do already, sure, you'll be gone within a short while. With my eyes closed, 
somehow I can. Uh, because you're used to it, you know how to do it when your eyes are closed. Uh, yeah. But if you can close your eyes and you can be aware easily, fine. I'm not rigid in this. If you can close your eyes and you can still be aware, awareness can be sustained that way. It's all right. In fact, I feel that my awareness increases. Mm. Especially but it's also course. good. It's also good from time to time. You can start off with closing your eyes. It's also good to try. Open your eyes too and see why do you lose awareness. But I can see now why you didn't explain to me. Now only you tell me. You don't know what to do. So with your eyes open, you do the same thing with your eyes closed. With your eyes closed, what do you pay attention to? With my eyes closed, I pay attention to my the feelings on my body, gross first, and then later on, I, the sound, uh, the smell, the four sense thoughts, uh, except the eyes. Uh, eh? mm. So and with then, your eyes open, mm. you can do the same with the five sense thoughts. Uh, I find it harder. Mm. I don't know why. Very strange. Yeah. Maybe you can find out for yourself. You can start with the eyes closed. Maybe establish your awareness first. Then you open your eyes and try to do the same and see how it goes. Because if you can't be practicing with your eyes open, you can't be practicing now. But if you know how to be practicing with your eyes open, you can practice right this moment. You can know the seeing, you can know the hearing, you can know the sensations, you can know the thinking, you can know these things as happenings. So if you are only skilled in practicing, only when your eyes are closed, you become very limited. Practice will be so limited. Okay. Mante, when we say we have right view, does it mean that we have direct knowledge and seeing on the Anicca, Dukkha and Anatta, or just we understand it intellectually only? Just intellectually. When it comes to right view, the way I understand it is simply intellectual. The actual seeing is in Samanyana Dasana. In the Pali and the English, it's easier to notice because Ditti is always understood as view. View as in, what's your view on this? What's my view? What's your view? You know. But if you translate in Chinese, sometimes it's a bit problem because Chinese will be translated as Zhen Jian. Then Samanyana Dasana will be translated as Zhen so, eh, that one also jian, this one also jian one. But the Pali for the Samanyan Dasana, Dasana means seeing. It's seeing. It means a direct thing. So in that way, it's different. So in the beginning, you have, like say, the right view of Anicca Dukkha Anatta. But in Samanyana Dasana, you actually see Anicca Dukkha Anatta. Right? Okay, I think that's enough.